Hey everybody, while we are uh, in this mindset of worshiping the Lord and worshiping Him through giving, we also wanted to um, take this opportunity to uh, let the church know that for the next several weeks, August 11th through September the 1st, we are wanting to take some time uh, to put some hands and feet to our uh, desire to be a voice for the voiceless and to care for the unborn and for uh, the men and women who are faced with unexpected uh, pregnancies, sometimes unwanted, and how we can come alongside and be a people for life. Uh, in the womb, yes, to birth, yes, all the way to the grave. And so we want to show you a brief video, and then I'll share a little bit more about what it might look like for us to participate in this worthy cause. When a woman finds out that she's pregnant, the first thing that she does, if she doesn't want to be pregnant, she searches for abortion information, abortion clinics, abortion help. So I had a, a traumatizing um, abortion. I got up on that table. Once they started, it was a nurse trying to act like everything was okay. And I'm sitting there staring at the ceiling. Tears are rolling down my eyes. And I'm having mixed emotions as to why are you doing this? Um, it's a little late now to jump off the table. I'm terrified. Um, and then through my left, on my left side, I could see what they were doing was going through the vacuum. It was going, it was clear. So I could see everything that was going in there. So that made it worse. And I just started screaming and crying. I was inconsolable. And I promised I would never do that again. But my first child was planned. The second child was a surprise. So when I found out, I was like, oh my God, are you serious right now? I did a Google search trying to, to find out um, more information about abortion clinics. For some reason, Gateway popped up online. I called and then I really didn't know too much. But then when I came in, the atmosphere made me feel like this might be the place that I should consider coming to talk to them and, and see what my choices are. The battle for the unborn is being fought primarily online. Planned Parenthood and other abortion agencies put millions of dollars into their online marketing so that when women are searching for abortions, they find them. And it is crucial, it's imperative that we be there competing with these abortion clinics so women find gateway. And much of our resources in reaching women goes to our online marketing. So when people give, and they give to gateway, and they give to their marketing campaigns, they are placing gateway online for those women that are searching for abortion clinics so that she finds gateway first rather than an abortion clinic. So in our days and times, this issue uh, can become something that is first political, and I want to wholly reject that. I want to say that this is an issue that is near to the heart of God, where Father, our Father in heaven creates life. He gives life. He sustains life, and he's the one we lean on. 
So I don't want any scheme of the evil one to make this a political thing. I want it to be something where we are getting near to the heart of God and staring injustice in the face and saying we don't want any part of injustice. We want to be a people who promote justice. And so as we consider these things, we need to understand in Wake County alone, over 6,300 children are killed by abortion annually. And we have around 28 babies that are killed every day here in Wake County. And so that's just our county. And so as we consider this, we have to also understand that it is, it is, there's a strategic plan there. Over 45% of all abortions are from African-American women. That's three times the rate of Caucasian women. And we must stand up for life. And so with this privilege, there's a lot of great organizations in our city, but one that we've been partnering with for years is Gateway, who's recently changed their name to Gateway Women's Care, and they have just opened a center in Durham as well across from the Planned Parenthood. So what we would invite you to consider is, above and beyond your general giving, how for these next three or four weeks, how you might be able to give above and beyond that to support the cause of life. Obviously, you can do it whenever the Lord leads, but this is just something we wanted to raise it up. We haven't done this in several years, and we just wanted to raise it up and say this is something that we would encourage you to be a part of. When it comes to specifics, you're like, what in the world does my giving do? $10 uh, for one year will provide uh, pregnancy and ultrasound supplies for 30 women. If you gave a monthly gift of $10, they have those type of options. $20 fills a diaper bag with supplies and needs for a new mom and baby. And one gift of $100, as they've done these statistics, will put enough money into online marketing that uh, it would save one baby's life. I've been serving on the board of Gateway for several years and continue to do so. And it is a wonderful organization that is filled with financial integrity and well, I'm just really encouraged by uh, the labors there. So out in the foyer and underneath our city section, you can find some brochures, ways you can volunteer. But at the end of the day, we just want you to consider giving. We'll make you aware of this as months as the weeks go by. Um, and you can go on our online giving as well. And there's a tab there that says uh, Gateway. So if you do want to give to that and you want to write a check, just put Gateway into the memo line. Consider that. Pray about that. We just want to be a part of fighting against injustice. So now that is over, we'll move on to the Word of God. So why don't we open up the Bible, if we would, and we are today beginning a new series. Having finished the book of Psalms yesterday, we are beginning, I mean yesterday, last week, after beginning a, uh, or finishing a series in the book of Ephesians last week, we now dive into a new series entitled Psalms for the Soul. Psalms for the Soul. And the opportunity here is that every preacher who will be preaching um, will take a psalm that has been recently encouraging to them or one that they might call their favorite psalm. This one that I am going to preach today is one that has been recently encouraging as I laid my heart before the Lord and just asked what uh, the people here at TCC might need to hear, and we are going to dive into Psalm 77. Psalm 77. And so as we go there, I'm not going to read the entire passage uh, at the beginning, but I will read the first 10 verses 
and then we will pray. Psalm 77, the word of God says this. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah, or think on this. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long gone. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at the end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll read one more verse. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that in this moment as we consider your word, that you would get glory from our time. Father, I ask that you would meet with us in power and that your Holy Spirit would move in mighty ways. I pray that there would be an encouragement to the soul. There would be a resolve to fight against the wiles of the devil. There would be a reminder of who you are, your goodness and your love. So, Father, in these moments, meet with us, change us. I pray you would meet with the children as they are in kids treasuring Christ. I pray that you would bless those workers as they labor to love those children and the next generation to treasure Christ with all their lives. I pray for the teenagers who are studying your word right now. Father, please cause your word to take deep root in their hearts that they might love Christ and surrender their lives wholly to you. Now make us humble recipients of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The question is, what comes out when you are squeezed? I like donuts, and I like them a lot. Now, if you ever look at a donut that doesn't actually have a hole in the middle, you're tipped off, potentially, that it's filled with something. And so... Sometimes you can look on the end of it and you can see, okay, this has got something in there. You know, it's Boston cream kind of thing or it's lemon filled or jelly filled or whatnot. 
My favorite filled donut is when it's filled with nothing because I don't like them when they're filled. I like them just donut. But when you squeeze a donut, what comes out? It could be a great surprise of joy or it could be something that you don't really look forward to. (laughs) So squeeze that thing and all of a sudden you see that it's lemon filled and you might be like, yes, that's my favorite donut or this just cream filled, that's my favorite donut and you're excited. There could be others that when you see that you are repulsed. And so now the question comes What happens when our hearts are squeezed? What happens when the craziness of life begins to squeeze at our human heart? What comes out? Many times it has been said that the real you comes out when we face adversity. What happens when that adversity hits you in the face? What comes out? Anxiety, anger, fear. Hope, resolve, endurance, peace. What comes out? Well, what we see here in Psalm 77 is an individual who has been squeezed and one who finds himself in significant despair. And I want to lay before you a question as I was reading The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. He says this, and I want you to think about it. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when I say God, what pops in? What do you think of? What comes into your mind when you think about God says a lot, not only about God, but about you. Who is this God that you know? What do you first think about Him? What do you love about Him? Who is He to you? This question is crucial. Because what we will see in Psalm 77 is when we are squeezed, everything kind of runs out the mind. What our mind needs is to be redirected towards the greatness of God. And the beauty of Psalm 77 is that journey. The journey that goes from despair to remembering who God is, remembering what He has done, and then delighting in Him. How do we get from A to B? From despair to delight. These are the four main ideas that we will see structured by the text. You'll see Selah, 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 which means think on this, think on this, think on this. When you're reading the Psalms, you see Selah, that means stop going so fast. It means slow down, set your mind, revisit, think on what we just went over. So three Selahs, which means four sections to this Psalm, and they are these four points that we will look at today. The first one is the despair of the saint. Two, remembering who God is, focusing in on who God is. Three, remembering what God does, past, present, promised, future. And then four, delighting in Jesus. And you might ask, how you get Jesus? Something written before Jesus. And that's the point of the Psalms, is to point you to Jesus. So I'll sh- hopefully show you that. 
So let's dive in. Number one, the despair of the saint. Psalm 77 is um, what many commentators call a lament psalm. It's a psalm of deep grief and struggle. And this psalm is more of a community lament. It's a song that would be sung in corporate worship as it might be phrased. It would be a song that the team would work on, so to speak, and we would come together and there would be a singing of this psalm together. It also has an individuality to it so that it's a song that can be, should be sung while you're in the beds, could be sung while you're going about your day. So don't think only corporate, but understand they gathered together to sing songs like this. And what's interesting is we don't understand the exact condition of the psalmist. If you look at it with me, it says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me in the day of my trouble. We have no idea what the trouble is, which is helpful. It doesn't narrow it so much that it only applies to one person's trouble and not another person's trouble. It's meant to be general so that it could be sung together and it could touch your heart in the midst of your trouble. Also, as you approach this psalm, we do not know if the trouble comes because of the guilt of the individual or because something happening to the individual? Are they suffering because they have done injustice? Or has injustice been done to them so that they're suffering? We have no idea. But what we do know this. Whether walking in a sense of guilt. Walking in a sense of pain point of this psalm is not innocence or guilt. The point is that we are taking our guilt to the Lord. The point of this psalm is that we are taking our suffering to the Lord. The point of this psalm is that we are taking all of who we are to the Lord. This psalm is a psalm of faith. And so, as they sing this psalm of faith, we jump in. And what we see at the beginning is the psalmist in despair. Now, there are many things that land us in despair or discouragement. It could be our own sin and the guilt that comes from that. It could be people against us. It could be facing limits and being really grieved that you can't do all that you want to do. Do I get an amen with that? It could be some major transition in your life. It could be decisions that you don't know the answer to. It could be the struggle in the home or struggle with friends or struggle with children. It could be all kinds of things that contribute to this discouragement. It can be attached to a specific situation or you could just wake up discouraged and it's struggle to figure out where in the world that came from. But in the midst of it, in the midst of it, what we see in this place of discouragement. What's precious about this psalm is it's sung by the weak. It's sung by the discouraged. It's sung by the depressed, the despondent. And it's sung in faith. 
God, I need you. It's towards God. I want you to look at how apparent the struggle is in the psalm. You see, I cry aloud. You see that in the first words. I cry aloud. This is not just poetic, flowery language. Think cries. Tears or screaming, think cries. But there's a confidence that God will hear. You see, verse 2, in the day of my trouble, you see that he's up at night. Look at verse 2. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. That means I'm reaching out. I'm reaching out to you, God, but it's in the night. So he's not sleeping. You see that later on in verse 4 when it says, God, you're holding my eyelids open. I'm sleepless. Look at verse 2. It says, my soul refuses to be comforted. This is the Hebrew phrase that's used when Jacob was brought news about his son Joseph having been killed, so the brothers said, by an animal. And they bring this coat of many colors covered in blood, the dad's grief over his son having been killed, although we know The end of that story was he ultimately was not killed. The point is, it was the grief over the loss of a child. And Jacob said, I refuse to be comforted. That's how deep. I just, my pain is so difficult. And that's the exact phrase he's using here. My soul refuses to be comforted. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, when I remember God, I moan. There's a weariness. He says, my spirit faints. There's a fatigue. There's a a struggle. When a spirit faints, you can have your mind doesn't think straight. Your anxiety can rise. The peace seems to go out the door. My spirit is fainting. And he says in verse 4, I am so troubled, I just can't speak. I don't have words. I don't know what to say. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where doubt consumes or where you're obsessed with anxieties and all of a sudden anxiety breaks open the door to hopelessness and you begin to despair. You might go into depression. There's a little book that I've been reading. I say little, it is little. (laughs) Little both in its width and in its height. (laughs) Appreciate that. It's a book by a man named David Murray. The title of the book is Christians Get Depressed Too. This idea that in our culture, if you are a Christian, the joy of the Lord can't collide with sadness. Paul says that's not true because he says Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's something that can happen in the human heart that vacillates up and down. That can find itself in this type of despair. Sometimes it's despair not filled with faith. It's just deep discouragement that you give way to. But other times it's a fight. 
Don't let people tell you that Christians, individuals that come to faith, the following of God is an easy, rosy, without suffering kind of road. That is where we have allowed the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel to seep its way into our thinking. That if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be feeling rotten. What you see in Psalm 77 is one filled with faith, yet battling in that faith for hope. When we walk with Jesus many times, He tells us that that road of walking His path will be one filled with suffering. It means that we are among the broken. It means that we are walking with the hurting and sometimes the hurt people hurt back. And it means countering wrong ways of living and wrong ways of thinking. And we, we don't always receive that well when we are countered. And it means walking the road with Jesus, which can mean suffering. So no, no matter what has led to this, what we see is the psalmist crying aloud to God. And, and in case you're tempted to think that that's it's good that he's crying out to God, but he is he just seems a wreck. Is that really okay? Well, what's interesting is it's the same type of language that's used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews chapter 5, 7 through 8 describes when Jesus is offering up prayers and supplications. It says this in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, because of the fear of the Lord. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so there is this beautiful opportunity in the midst of some of our lowest times, and the opportunity is twofold. One is that we refuse to let that despair define us and dictate to us and instead we call out to the Lord like our Savior did as he was on the brink of death crying out we cry out to our God with loud cries and tears because we know he's more powerful than our feelings and emotions more powerful than death and the second opportunity is this he's got something for us if the Son of God learns obedience from his season of suffering, we too have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn from our, our season of struggle. It's an opportunity to step deeper into holiness. There's always something awry in the human heart that God is wanting to shape and wanting to get rid of. There's sin to be confessed and it's not to be afraid of that. Because the Bible describes in Acts 3 that when you repent, there's refreshment to be had on the other side. That's the gateway into refreshment. And so what we see in Psalm 77 is this despair of the saint, this struggle. But the hope is that God is shaping you. He is at work. But right now, so far in this psalm, the psalmist is having trouble seeing it. And so I want to take you to the second idea. It is remembering who God is. So that's the first Selah, verse 3. And we've meditated on the despair of the saint. But the second grouping, verses 4 to 9, we want to think on 
who God is. Remember who God is. Look at verse 4. You hold my eyes open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. So now he's, he's trying to think back in the past. And he says, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. The Google search of the heart is happening in verse 6. What are you going to type in in that search? Yes. So when, what are you going to type in in that search? And here he begins to think about the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not that easy just to say, okay, now I'm going to think on God. The diligent search doesn't know where to go sometimes, so I want to do an exercise right now. I would like, if you would, in this group, because right now it's the, well, how do we have it? Can you just put it up for me? Okay, I have to do this backwards left. Okay, you guys, okay? What I want you to do is I want you to look at this. This is verses 1 to 3, and I'm going to have you read it out loud together, okay? Middle people, these are the verses that we are encountering right now. At the queue, I would like for you to read those verses, okay? You friends over here, you're going to be reading some verses that come up later in the passage, verses 11 through 13, or, or no, those are, yes, in my distress. That's 1 to 3. 4 to 9, this is 11 through 13, okay? So, what I want to do is actually want to start with you, okay? So, you can get your, you know, paper Bible out, you can get your phone out, we can read this together. It's a reading exercise. I'll read with you for the first round, just to make sure you're not nervous, okay? Here we go, let's read this together. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? Amen? Amen. Verses of hope. Now, when I point, I want you to start reading your verses, and I want you to read your verses, okay? Your verses are here in the middle, okay? I'm not going to give you a practice round. Because we ain't got time for that, okay? So when we do this, that's when we start reading, okay? You read yours, you read yours, okay? Wow, well done. I felt like a choir director. Go. Okay. Now, I would like for you to be added. Okay? So you read your verses. These are verses 1 to 3, the verses of despair that we just went through. These are the verses of questioning who God is. These are the verses of hope. Okay? On the count of three. Here we go. No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. That's appropriate. What was louder, the hope 
or the voices of confusion and discouragement. And what would you call that? I would call that a cacophony. That was a mess. That's our brains. That's what happens when we sit still in the midst of our despair and we sit there and we're like, no, I'm going to set my mind on the Lord. What begins to be louder? I don't have to train you or convince you. You don't have to train yourself to focus on the circumstances. It just runs and it runs loudly. The drama, the difficulty, the despair. I can't keep my eyes open. I, I, can't, I mean, I can't close my eyes. I'm sleepless. I'm struggling. Those things are so loud that they make the hope so hard to find. And that's what we find right here in this passage. We find the psalmist trying with all of his might to say, I've got to do a diligent search. And so he types in, who is God? And when he types it in, here's what comes to mind. What comes to mind is verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? That is, has his unceasing love ceased? Are his promises at the end for all time? Do you see the extreme language? Forever. All time. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? The first thing that can go or that can be called into question when we're struggling is who is God? And who is He right now in the midst of my pain? And so what this psalmist is asking is inviting us into it's a journey on thinking on God, but I might say think on who? Because so many times when the anxiety, fear, despair come, we aren't ready. We're not ready. We haven't studied him. We haven't meditated on him in the good days, in the regular routine of life. And we're not ready. Whatever metaphor you want to use, we don't have ammunition for the war. We don't have medicine in the cabinet for the sickness. We don't have money in the account. We don't have gas in the tank. Whatever you call it, the summary is when the soul needs to be directed to God, we're on empty. We, it's like the nightmare of you showing up to the play and you're the star performer and you're in your underwear. It's like, we're not ready for this moment. What do we do? And this is why Sunday morning gatherings, connecting in Bible studies, texting one another, praying for one another, community groups, these things are not just icing on the cake. They are what it means to continue to build one another up, to see God day after day after day. It's why sitting before the Lord is so crucial. You might say, I don't feel it. I don't feel like it. It's too wearying. I've only got five minutes. I'm not going to do it. Do it. Take that step to sit with the Lord. Nothing will replace 
time. Nothing makes up for time with God. TV will not teach you about God. Sports can't remedy this. Music can't satisfy this. Food won't change your mind. You must sit with God and consider Him and His Word and meditate on His Word. I've been reading a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Peter Cesaro. I quoted him before. He has this quote about the difficulty of us slowing down to meet with Jesus. His phrase is, slow down for loving union with Jesus. But the quote is this, you can't live at warp speed without warping your soul. He goes on to say, the speed at which you are living and leading is exacting a hidden toll. Warp speed will blind you to the damage you are doing to the soul. Our inability to slow down and to meet with God means that when we come to him in despair, we don't know where to go. We don't know what to think. And if you're like me, if you're like the psalmist, there are times that we walk around in doubt or we walk around in discouragement. And we look at what this psalmist is saying here. Is the Lord going to reject me forever? Is his steadfast love run dry? If we know the God of the scriptures, we know him to be infinite. It means he has no limits. It means that he doesn't run dry. We know him to be immutable, which means he doesn't change. Aren't you glad that when our emotions are so crazy, he is not crazy? (laughs) He's not fluctuating? The word would be called immutable at times. James says there's no shadow or variation or change with God. He doesn't say, I love you less tomorrow because tomorrow was a bad day or will be a bad day. And I love you better yesterday because you performed better. My God loves He loves his children. He's not a 10 out of 10 for you today and a 3 out of 10 for you tomorrow. He's always for you. And it's these things that you will never know about God unless we are meditating on him. I tell you, I was reading in the book of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 49 runs into a Someone who is struggling like this psalmist in Psalm 77, and it says this. Sing for joy, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt. O earth, break forth. O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. What do his people say? But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. This is exactly the type of thing that the psalmist is saying. The Lord's love is going to run dry. He's forgotten me. He's forsaken me. This is who God is. God does not chastise in this moment. He comes alongside this despondent individual and he just tells them who he really is. And look at what he says. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And one commentator said, 
He's inviting us to stare at his hands in order to say, I have not forsaken you. I love you. Look to the cross. Look at the suffering servant of Isaiah as the hope that God has not forsaken you. I know that's how you feel, that the unceasing love of God is ceasing. But my God is for you, and the cross proves it. Even humans, even humans can go up and down. Like he said, a nursing mom could still maybe even forget a child, but I will not forget you. And this is the hope that is meant to flood the soul of the psalmist in the midst of the struggle. That's why in verse 9 he says, Selah. Think on what is right about God. His steadfast love is not ceasing. His promises have not come to an end. He has not forgotten to be gracious to you. He is gracious to you. And his purposes are being carried out. Carried out. Trust him. Yet, he says in verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. This is when we get into this third idea. We not only are fighting to remember who God is, but what he does, his works. And it says in verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Tim Keller uh, focuses in on this word appeal and says we've got to think about an appeal to a wrong verdict. So what happens in a courtroom when a verdict comes down and it's wrong, you make an appeal to that verdict, hoping that it would turn out differently. Well, what's happened in the jury of this individual's mind is that they've created a wrong verdict about who God is. And so now there's an appeal saying, that's not right. I've got to, I've, something right has to come out of this. And so what you see is the diligent search, not giving up even when your heart and mind are saying some crazy things. And so he says, I'm going to appeal to the right hand of the Most High. I'm going to appeal to the power of God. And so he says in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And so what he is doing is he's going back and he is remembering the stories he's been told. He's rehearsing the scriptures that he has before him of all of the mighty deeds of the Lord. What you see is in verse 11, he's remembering the wonders of old. Verse 12, I'm going to ponder or meditate all of your work. Not just what's been done of old, but what's been done here in the moment. And I'm going to meditate on your mighty deeds, the power with which you do those deeds. So, what, where does our mind go? We're struggling. We've confessed things that are not true about God. We need to now run to who God says He is. But we also need to remember what He does. And so, when we try to set our mind on what he does, we think about what has happened in the past. We think about what he is doing right now. And we think about the power with which he has done those things. That power is sufficient to meet you in your struggle. Now specifically in this psalm, there are tons of echoes of the exodus. Of when the people of Israel were pulled out 
of Egypt through the Red Sea. And the echoes that you see are when he is, in verse 15, saying, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and of Joseph. Jacob and Joseph, they longed for the promised land. And the only way to get through the promised land was to be exodus removed from Egypt into the promised land. You also see in verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. This poetic freedom to talk about water being terrified. It's when God says to the waters, move, and they move. What can we learn about God from the works of old? Well, We do. We need to remember that Red Sea moment and remember that all creation bows to him. That the waters in verse 16, they're afraid of God. They're at his beck and call. It reminded me of Jesus when he's in a boat. He's not afraid. Everybody else is afraid. We can be afraid. Jesus is not afraid. This is what we have to remember. He's not afraid of what's happening. He's always working good. He's not messing up. He's not lost sight of you. He's always for you. And with words, when he's ready, when it's best for us, he says, peace, be still. And the waters stop. This is exactly what happened. It looked, if you're in the people of Israel's shoes and you're standing on the edge of the Red Sea, you would think God has messed up. Has his promises failed? Is his love going to keep going? Because it looks right now as I look over the hill, the Egyptians are coming, I'm dying. But listen to what Moses says in Exodus 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. I can't tell you how many times over the past year where God has just brought me to a place where I wanted to try to fix things and I realized I couldn't fix it. And the phrase that kept coming to me was Exodus 14. God, you must fight for me. God, you must fight for your people. God, you must fight for your name. God, do it. And it was just a sense of, I can't. It's an it's a honest, humble acknowledgement that you've tried with all your might and you can't fix it. And you trust the Lord to do the battling that you can't do. The psalmist is there. He's at the lowest of the low. He can't fix it. He's even thinking wrong about God, but he says, I'm going to remember my God of old. And when he does, his mind runs more than likely to that Red Sea moment when a God fights for him, for his people. What do we know? We know that our God is over creation. He defends the defenseless. He forgives the sinner. He loves you. Yes, he loves you. And then what you see down in verse 17, the clouds pour out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. He's describing God shooting arrows as shooting lightning. 
This is more than likely, if you're remembering the times of old, it's more than, li- more than likely when the trumpets were blowing and the thunder was shaking at Mount Sinai right before the giving of the Ten Commandments when the people were supposed to go up the mountain and meet with God and commune with Him. The preparation of that meeting with God was the flashing of lightning and the thunder and the claps. And it was just, okay, who's in control of this moment? It's not those people. It's our God. And where when we are afraid of people, it leaves us to running, the fear of the Lord leads us to draw near. And so this passage is meant to cause us to think on those works of old to know our God. This is where journals are also helpful. Where you write down what you know God to be doing. Prayers you know Him to be answering in the here and now. Because you will need places to go to remember that He is at work when you are discouraged. That's the first things that go out the mind. (laughs) Is anything good? They just go, they just run. And you can't catch them. They just run. It's like, okay. I've got a note in my phone. I know where to go. When I have anxiety, there are verses that I'm trying to set to memory. In Matthew chapter 6 and Philippians chapter 4, I've got to know where to go. This is what the psalmist is doing. And it's where the walls begin to fall and the despair begins to find light. And so you see the journey at the end and This fourth point, when he delights in Jesus. In verse 15, what you see is you, with your arm, redeemed your people. So he's calling the people to look for redemption, to look for this sense of deliverance. And now look at verse uh, 18 and 19. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. There's this calling us to remember his power, but also his work with that power in an unseen way. There are times when he's at work that you have trouble seeing. And so... What happens when we cannot see is we can be discouraged and we can create our own narrative. But it is still happening. And so I was looking at WRAL and uh, they let me know that what is happening on Monday is a day to celebrate elephants. (laughs) I was like, no, that's interesting. So we're going to celebrate elephants and all that they are to our world. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So I began to read a little bit on elephants. I was like, okay, what about elephants? Because way back when TCC first started, uh, one of the pastors who's no longer here and myself, we went to Thailand. And in Chiang Mai, I got to ride an elephant, okay? 
Those things are amazing. And as you stand next to those elephants, they can take a, a trunk, and they had trained people that had them wrap their trunks around you, and that's a very intimidating thing because it could crush you in one moment. So, I, you know, I received the hug, and I said, stop. And so then, you know, we ride the elephants, and, and they're a lot of fun. But as you think about elephants, here's something I didn't know, that elephants communicate with each other up to 20 kilometers away through stomping and noises that we can't hear, but elephants can. So yes, the stomping we could hear, but there are other ways that they communicate with each other that the human ear cannot hear, but other elephants can. And it's how they heard, it's how they know where people are, or not people, elephants are. And I was just like, well, if that's happening, and I have no idea it's happening, then surely the God of the universe can be at work, and I'd be a little slow to pick up on it. And this is exactly what he's saying. My God is at work in creation in ways that sometimes I can't see, but his power is still at work. And so he ends this whole psalm with a very weird ending. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, done. Just like, okay, I was expecting something different. But what he's speaking to is a God who is not only powerful, but a God who is a shepherd. We are his flock. And what he is calling us to reflect on, Moses and Aaron, the Exodus, now it fits into the broader book of the Psalms. And here's one lesson you need to take away when we're studying the Psalms. The Psalms are not individual only, they are part of a book. And in the book, chapters 1 and 2 are the introduction, 145 to 150 are the conclusion, and this whole book is pointing you to the Son, that's Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Who's that son? It's the coming Messiah. And every psalm is meant to point you through the author, here Asaph, it could be David, to the Messiah who is able to do what that author could not do. So a phrase to think through is through to. Who is this pointing to? It's pointing through Asaph, through the suffering community, to one who suffered perfectly in our place, who provides a perfect picture of our God's presence and love in the midst of suffering. If there was ever a moment where we thought defeat was going to happen, it was the cross. And if there was ever a moment when we thought things had gone off the rails, it was the cross. And yet if there was ever a moment when things were turned completely upside down, it was when Jesus Christ, who died on that cross, rose from the dead three days later. And it is described in Luke chapter 9 as an exodus. It's called a departure. Hear this, Luke 9, 30-31. And behold, two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, this is the Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, the word there is exodus. They spoke of Jesus' exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Why? Because he is the great shepherd 
who walked through our suffering was delivered through into the resurrection so that we know he can guarantee victory over sin, Satan, and death. He walked the exodus of delivery so that now as we stare at verse 20, he is our good shepherd and we, those sinners we are, we can turn in our despair to our God. We don't have to put makeup on it. We just give our souls to the Lord. And in humility we say, we are guilty yet we are loved. And in our humility we say, that pain hurts so bad. But God, I'm choosing to believe who you say you are. You will not forget us. You will not forsake us. And because of that, I'm trusting you're a good shepherd who is leading us, even at times unseen, to adore you day by day. And so the invitation from the psalmist as it ends, odd as it is, delight in Jesus who has redeemed you and who is for you in the midst of your despair. Let's pray.